0: Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. I'm Alexander Bolaba, production lead at GovCIO Media Research. With me today is Deputy Editor Kate Macri. Hi, Kate. Hi, Alex. So you had the opportunity to talk with Lauren Knausenberger, CIO at the Air Force. How'd that go?
1: I thought it went great. It was a really interesting interview. We talked about a lot of stuff going on with the Air Force and she had lots of really interesting little tidbits of information. So yeah, I thought it was a great conversation.
0: Well, speaking of those tidbits, did you learn anything surprising about Lauren's career?
1: She had this really great story about how she got her job at the Air Force, not the CIO job, because she started out in like a lower position before she ended up becoming CIO. Because she was initially a defense contractor or worked for a defense contractor, and uh, an Air Force captain wanted to talk to her about some things that they were having trouble with, you know, challenges they thought she could help out with, and they went to some microbrewery, and she like it's like one of those things where it's just like, I don't even know if she's making it up or not. Cause I feel like this is almost like a cliche thing now. It's like, she wrote down some ideas on a bar napkin, you know, and it was just like, I think we should do like this and this and this. And like the air force has like these things that like, I know how to fix. And then someone higher up at the air force saw this bar napkin was like, she's great hire her. And so that's how she got into the air force. And she's just really passionate about like it and cybersecurity and, It sounds like she's getting a lot done.
0: So did Lauren share any interesting news about what's to come from the Air Force?
1: She told me that the Department of the Air Force is going to be releasing their new zero trust strategy here in the next couple of weeks before President's Day weekend, which is very exciting because we previously knew that there was an Air Force zero trust strategy coming Um, We just didn't know when. We just knew it was going to be sometime in like the first half of 2023. Definitely was not expecting it to be coming this soon. So that's very exciting news. And her office is going to be sharing the strategy with me as soon as they've internally approved it. So be on the lookout for an article about that. She was able to talk a little bit about, you know, what they're hoping to accomplish from a zero trust perspective at the Air Force and of course, this strategy is going to be in line with the Defense Department's five year zero trust strategy that they released last fall before the end of calendar year 2022. So lots of exciting zero trust stuff coming at the Air Force.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. And to give a little peek behind the curtain of the podcasts, after Kate recorded this, I immediately got a message <laughs> saying, like, we need to prioritize publishing this. We have some exciting news, and it's really cool to be able to get news like this on the podcast, and so I hope people enjoy uh, hearing about it. And this is maybe the first time a lot of people are hearing about. It. Well, speaking of zero trust, can you tell me a little bit about how the Air Force views zero trust?
1: So I think one of the most interesting things Lauren said about zero trust in the interview was she said the first really good use case they had for zero trust was around financial management and auditing, which I thought was so interesting. Like, I don't think I've ever heard someone say that. It's also like, that's not very sexy either. You know, it's just like, oh, really? Like (laughs) auditing, like finances? Like, wow, that's so cool (laughs) at the Air Force. (laughs) But yeah, it was really interesting to hear that perspective. And she also said, you know, zero trust is obviously a very big priority for the Air Force because it's going to make JADC2, which is the Joint All-Domain Command and Control Initiative uh, across the Defense Department, pulling from all of the armed services and combatant commands. She said, you know, zero trust is going to make JADC2 possible. And that's a pretty big deal. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out with these strategy documents that are coming out around zero trust and how that is gonna maybe guide, accelerate, et cetera, the implementation of JADC2 and what that looks like.
0: Gotcha. Well, with all of that in mind, let's take a listen to your conversation.
1: To start off our conversation this morning, I was hoping you could give me a quick overview of what the Department of the Air Force, Office of the CIO has accomplished in the last year and what you're looking forward to this year in line with the Air Force IT strategy.
2: Yes, absolutely. So, um, so first, um, the, the things that I'm I'm most excited about last year we have finally gotten the level of advocacy and funding for IT that is gonna set us up to do really incredible things uh, in fiscal year 24, including getting some some really great momentum on our Zero Trust Strategy, which we've talked about is is really the, the foundation for a lot of things we're trying to do with ABMS and JADC2 and getting to the point where we can fight uh, together much more easily with our joint partners and our allies. Um, Meanwhile, we've dramatically increased adoption of our enterprise services. And and one of the things that I really wanted to do as CIO was to help people understand what it means to be an enterprise. And and really, I I think it's wonderful that we are driving enterprise adoption. um, That's eliminating some of the shadow IT um, where enterprise services um, take over. And people are being very open about how they can contribute to the enterprise and how they can leverage the enterprise so that is that's a really wonderful thing we've also driven our user experience scores up by 15 points over the past year which is which is a really big deal and a lot of the things that we've done, um, there are some really boring things like recognizing that we needed to replace a lot of our endpoints. They were just too old and we were asking a lot of them, um, replacing some network equipment, but also looking at um, reconfiguring the way that we do certain things, transactional paths and, um, and migrating things more to the cloud. Um, there are a lot of things that we've gone after. Um, on the user experience side, and and also um, operationalizing user experience, doing a much better job of being able to see, hey, there's something funny happening at Aviano. Oh, wow, there's something, uh, we had some equipment break, and now that traffic is being routed back to the US instead of to somewhere else in Europe. Um, And being able to catch those things immediately, fix the problem, and to also look at What are the core drivers of latency and throughput in our mission and how can we tackle that next? And then how can we use that data to also drive policy change where policy creates a bit of a a glass floor to what we can do with our performance. And so having the maturity of that data over the past year um, has also been really exciting. And of course we published our our CIO strategy and uh, six lines of effort to get after over 23 and 24 and have the enterprise working together in an incredible way um, through the strategy and those roadmaps. Um, And in fact, being able to shift some things left through the clarity of the EIT roadmaps with folks realizing um, to a a very fine level of detail, this is exactly where the money that I am spending and the work that I'm doing and the capability that I bring to the department ties in with this enterprise capability. And here's how I can work with these other teams to do this together right now. But just putting in place that that foundation of IT service management in a consistent way across the department. It's one of those super boring things that will be game changing. And it'll give us a lot more data too to see what is that next problem that we need to solve. Some of the data things that I mentioned um, are gonna be really huge this year, Um, getting out those metadata standards and starting to um, implement that, making sure that all of our data is discoverable and prioritized and and can be ingested. Um, That is a huge piece and we we also we're doing an effort called Race to the Cloud right now, which is focused on driving velocity into our cloud and driving consumability. And um, we have SAIC as our prime vendor, and Microsoft and Amazon as our our big uh, cloud vendors working with us to to say, Hey, where where can we? drive velocity in our process? Where is policy in our way? Where are we in our own way? Where have we maybe not adopted some automation to move things into the cloud? And then we're working also with companies like VMware for how can we lift and shift without creating cybersecurity risk, but allowing us to get the resilience of the cloud and maybe start to to sundown down some, some work in our data centers, so, so you'll see an aggressive push toward cloud migration and also a, an aggressive push toward velocity and consumability in our cloud.
1: Yeah, so the Department of the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System recently awarded a $112 million contract to integrate ABMS C2 into the cloud with DevSecOps. So I'm interested in hearing from you about why this is important for the Air Force's contribution to JADC2.
2: Absolutely. So so first, I want to share that we've had some pretty great collaboration over the past six months to a year with the Army and the Navy, on JADC2 in general, and and a lot of really good leadership uh, from the DOD and the J6 as well. And I think that we are rowing together in a way um, that is is very helpful uh, for the future fight. Um, There has been a little bit of criticism, of course, in the past about, hey, are we working together? And and I I definitely want to just just throw out an enthusiastic, yes, we're working really well together. And there are some parts of this that we have to do Kind of an end-to-end. There there are a lot of joint use cases where we do ultimately have to map out the joint kill chain and we have to solve problems together from the beginning and build that into software. Um, There are a lot of foundational things that we all need to do um, even within our own services to make sure that as we move forward, that we can go from a situation where we can solve certain use cases together um, really, really fast to where we can solve any use case, including ones that we haven't even thought of yet together just on a moment's notice. And and that's a really big deal. And so some of those foundational things that we're working together are um, software-defined WAN, being able to share data uh, from anywhere to anywhere across uh, multiple departments, um, the way that we're tagging, of course, uh, tying in with our zero trust strategy. We're all working together on that, um, and the way that we are working together in the cloud as well. um, We're we're not too worried about uh, which cloud it is yet. You know, we're all using Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Oracle um, for different workloads. Um, But just making sure that that our core data is in the cloud or in a modern edge capability that is connected to the cloud um, gives us some really good resilience and makes it uh, almost inherently and immediately more interoperable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned ease of use being a priority here. So how do you see the role of software factories evolving within Air Force IT priorities and strategy over the next few
2: years? Absolutely. So I was, I was actually up at Kessel Run in Boston uh, yesterday meeting with Kessel oh, nice. Run and Platform One and the guys that do mm-hmm. our ODIN platform. Um, some of the Best Bespin guys um, were up there as well, nice. the Level Up guys. And um we were, we remembered uh, back to a few years ago when we had the, the Department of the Air Force, actually, I guess at the time it was just the Air Force. Space Force wasn't born yet. We had our very first DevSecOps Summit. And there were so few people in the community and we all knew each other. Um, and Kessel Run was kind of, you know, the hot kid on the block, um, you know, that was really delivering capability to our AOC. At, at, at that time, they were really just delivering to Cutter. And that was after Eric Schmidt's now famous trip out there where where the commander said, oh, my goodness, you can do anything to me, but don't erase my whiteboard um, because that will uh, completely just nix all of our in-air refueling apps uh, across the entire uh, AOR. And Eric Schmidt, of course, said, wait a second, there should be an app for that. And then um, about six months later, um, we were using an algorithm to do our inner. Air refueling and saving half a billion dollars a year on platform costs and saving like $250,000 a week on fuel. And that was that original use case that I think got everybody saying, hey, we have something here. And so over time, what we mean by the word software factory, it has meant different things. And so you'll hear people say, oh, the Air Force has a hundred software factories. I would say, no, we don't have a hundred software factories. We do have, at least a hundred organizations where people are taking a conscious effort to solve problems in new ways. And they could be solving those problems with low code, no code. They could be solving those problems through user-centered design. Um, They could be solving those problems in a lot of different ways um, or writing basic code. There are other software factories um, where they are writing uh, more complex applications. Um, there are other places that actually are providing the software factory, which is where the code is made, you know the platform itself, and enabling uh, that platform to be used by others. and And we have uh, Kobayashi Maru. Castle Run Platform One, there are not many many groups that do that and they provide kind of different flavors of of capabilities to our software developers. And I think it actually is really important to have a couple of paths to production and an element of choice in the way that we develop code. And in fact, that was a big part of the conversation yesterday. Um, We wanna learn from each other, we don't wanna rework. and we do want to provide some level of choice, and we want to make it really easy for our customers, our warfighters, to understand what those choices are and where those choices are going to help them in their warfighting and what business outcome those choices are going to give to them and to make it really easy for them to consume. And so that is where some of those most mature software factories and cloud organizations, quite. Quite frankly, uh, Cloud one was there in the room as well um, because you know you, you can't do DevSecOps without the ops and a lot of the ops and, and quite frankly the the hosting for the dev platforms are in the cloud. Um, and for our most agile programs, hundred of them are in the cloud. Um, and so so that is it, it's really that increased collaboration, a different type of competition where it's competition to provide uh, choice and new functionality, and to really work together to drive that value. Yeah. And
1: now that the joint war fighting cloud capability has been awarded, do you see the Air Force software factories as really like representing the future of what the Air Force needs to become or or will become, especially from like an IT perspective?
2: So in a lot of ways. The software factories absolutely represent the future of the Air Force in that they are using agile processes. They are using modern tools. They are incredibly adaptable. Um, Those are the things that we want to be in everything. And and quite frankly, our warfighters, they are adaptable and agile and they can solve problems on the fly. They can solve incredible problems, um, even if they've never heard of DevSecOps. Um, but when we are not directly in conflict, um, when we are not kind of back against the wall and and we feel um, you know a little bit more kind of in an o and m realm, um, that's where I want everyone to constantly remember what it is like to be a warfighter in conflict or a developer in a software factory where I need to solve this problem. I only have a limited amount of time for this sprint. It has to meet a requirement. It has to be really good. It has to be really resilient. And I am providing this to someone that needs this capability. And I think that mindset and that urgency is so incredibly healthy and that urgency stays whether we are in conflict or whether we are not. Every single day that urgency is there. So I think that's really healthy. Now with JWCC itself, I am really excited about um, JWCC as a unified architecture for global production. And I am very excited about um, some of the things that it streamlines, Um, the, the potential for significantly reducing latency for some of our overseas missions um, within policy um, and the ability to use cross domain solutions in a much easier way. Um, Those are some things that just from a policy standpoint will make it so much easier within a resilient architecture. Um, That is incredibly exciting. We still have to figure out what is the best way to consume services in JWCC And that's where there might actually be some complementary partnership um, with groups like Cloud One, where maybe JWCC is the hosting environment and groups like Cloud One provide those common enterprise services, migration services, um, the the continuous monitoring services. Those are the things that we have to figure out in JWCC. Um, JWCC, as I understand it right now, is also focused on production workloads. So we still need to have a place to host development tests and staging. And we still have to have um, just a a really easy, seamless flow into those production environments. And so, so that is, that is something that we're looking at and we're actively working with DISA and the DoD because we want JWCC to truly be our joint warfighting cloud. And absolutely, it has to enable uh, DevSecOps and, and quite frankly, that's, that's one of the best use cases for the cloud. Um, we need the resilience, we need the agility. Um, we have to be able to deploy new capabilities, new software, new algorithms, new business and warfighting processes very, very quickly. And that is something that JWCC will enable.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a really holistic perspective on like how all of these different IT and cloud pieces are moving together. So I'm interested in hearing from you about uh, Zero Trust a little bit. The Air Force CTO, Jay Banchi, recently said the Air Force plans to release its own zero trust roadmap sometime in the first half of 2023, complementing the Pentagon's five-year zero trust strategy. So I'm interested in hearing from you about how the Air Force hopes to build on what the five-year zero trust strategy is doing and, and how you're going to implement that at the Air Force level. Like, What are your priorities in that area?
2: Absolutely. So first, we will release that roadmap. It actually uh, is on my desk for uh, review now. Um, We expect to release it next week and highlight it at the uh, Rocky Mountain Cyber Symposium, which happens later this month. So so first, the the Department of the Air Force, I believe, was the first in the DoD to publish a zero-trust strategy um, and an ICAM strategy. And so we've been working on our Zero Trust journey for a little while. We have um, some some pretty good pilots in place um, and have worked from the beginning with sharing that knowledge and sharing that advocacy uh, across the DoD. And so we participated in the DoD Zero Trust Strategy with the DoD ICAM Strategy as well as the Zero Trust Implementation Plan. And so that has all been aligned. There are a lot of things that each of the services will have to do to stay in line with the department and stay in line with each other, um, but also we'll just ha- we will have to execute a lot of these things um, within our organizations. So every single application that exists uh, today that we deem worthy of existing tomorrow will need to fit into the enterprise ICAM stack. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of work to uh, to pull in disparate ICAM solutions, because, you know, there there are a, a number of different solutions today, especially in the warfighting enterprise um, that we have to get after. Um, and so that that is a huge part of the zero trust strategy. Um, there is a lot of data that needs to be tagged um, and. And. Um, and that's something that we are all going to very much have to have to do. Um, we should be making a decision here in the coming weeks on what is our approach for software to find WAN. That's another thing that we're doing through the ABMS digital infrastructure. And uh, so we have to make that decision. It has to absolutely be interoperable across the DoD. And it has to make sure that we can uh, dynamically route our data in a way that makes us resilient for a near peer conflict. And so um, so there are a lot of things on that roadmap that we have to get after. Next generation gateways, that that's a key piece too. Um, and and really making sure that we have the ubiquitous connectivity to drive. All of the other things across the zero trust strategy, Um, these are things that we can coordinate with the department and be in line with across the department. But the services are going to have to do the hard work across all of those applications and programs um, to bring all of these things into that that future zero trust strategy and make it real and, uh, and make it work.
1: Yeah. Do you see AI and automation playing a role here, especially when it comes to just automating cyber responses and user permissions, that kind of thing from a zero trust perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. AI is already an uh, automation our, our, are and, and analytical tools. Um, you know, if we go really broad, it, it's already a big part of the way that we uh, that we do cyber defense uh, of our network. And uh, a lot of our cyber data comes into our big data platform. And we do have some pretty sophisticated algorithms that we use to analyze patterns and uh, to constantly look at it maybe what is interesting on our network and and what needs to be truly investigated on our network. Um, there are a lot of things that we can automate today, but the long-term plan has to be a holistic strategy for managing identity and for managing data. And once you do those two things pretty well, you can start to move toward a world where we can fight in one warfighting environment with our joint partners and our allies. And we don't necessarily need to have multiple networks for certain partners and different networks for other partners and a network for mm-hmm. unclass and a network for secret, you can start to break that down and simplify because you know enough about the identity and the data, and you can route that data to where it needs to go. And you have the global software footprint to make use of that data. Um, so, so yes, it um, Yes, AI is a huge part of our strategy as our data and automation and, and quite frankly, a uh, better process for our workforce. Um, I see a lot of the automation that we're doing right now as a really important exercise on our way to better software and on our way to... Um, developing some algorithms that will help in the future, and and also on our way to consuming enterprise services that that work the first time and and don't need a whole lot of additional automation to automate a bad process. We we are using actually a lot of um, robotic process automation right now um, to solve problems that kind of fit in those categories where We want to eliminate manual process in our workforce. And and so that is some of the functional analysis that that I'd say that we are um, doing a little bit more of now, starting with our financial management systems because our our alligator closest to the boat, actually for zero trust, is audit readiness and fire compliance.
1: I never thought about it that way before. That's really interesting. And you mentioned that, You know, with zero trust, that means with allied partners and across like the different services, you don't have to necessarily rely on different networks and protocols if you're all using, you know, an interoperable zero trust approach to cybersecurity. Does that mean that you see zero trust as a uh,
2: important component of JADC2? Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that, I think we're aligned on that across the department. Um, Zero Trust is, it's the first cyber topic that I have seen used in the same sentence as most dear to the future fight within the Department Mm -hmm. of the Air Force. And at the DOD level and and CAPE, um, who really focuses in on what is that next capability that we need to analyze and fund everyone is aligned that um, zero trust and all of the activities that make up that zero trust future are critically important to the future fight. Um, they are critically important to our cybersecurity goals, to our war fighting performance goals, to our ability to simplify our environment and fight together with our allies. There are just, there are a lot of problems that we solve by getting this right.
0: We're going to take a break from today's interview and play a game I call Alphabet Soup, where I challenge our hosts to name the federal agency or office based on acronym ALONE. Playing today are Deputy Editor Kate Macri and Staff Writer Researcher Anastasia Obis. Hi, Anastasia. Hi, Kate.
1: Hi, Alex. Hey Alex.
0: Here are the rules. I will say an acronym, and if you know the answer, Buzz in using a buzzword. Today's buzzword is waterfall. If you get it wrong, the other player gets a chance to guess. If neither of you get the answer, I open the floor to random guessing until somebody gets it right, or I give up and tell you. There are three acronyms today. Are you ready?
1: Yes. Yes, I hope so. (laughs)
0: We are going to start on the easier side with GAO. Waterfall. Yes, Kate.
1: Government Accountability Office.
0: Yes, that is correct. The Government Accountability Office, 1.2 Kate. Our next acronym is NPS.
1: This one sounds really familiar. I am not sure but does it have something to do with national something sector? (laughs) I'm making stuff up. The first word is national and the last word is service. Service, yeah.
0: That that is correct. You're missing a a crucial one in the middle.
1: Yeah, we are. (laughs) The game changer. Uh, Could you give us a hint?
0: Yes. Um, My... Well, I'll give you two hints. One is not a real hint, but if I were to get another job, it would definitely be for this agency um, because it is by far the most outdoorsy.
1: Oh, oh, waterfall. National yes, Park, Kate. Service. National Park. Park Service. National Park Service. National Park Service,
0: yes. Yes, that is correct. The National Park Service. If I uh, if I leave this job, you can find me uh, guiding tourists uh, at Yellowstone. Our last acronym is O-M-A-O.
1: I want to guess. It's probably um, Office of Management. Does A stand for accountability?
0: <laughs> well, you got the first word right. It is Office of Something. O-M-A-O. Give me a hint. Yes, this is science-related. It covers both water and sky.
1: Does it have air? And does A stand for air?
0: Close. So one of the missing words is a branch of the military, and the other is what you would call flying a plane.
1: So a Marine is M, right? Office of Marine Aerospace something. I don't know. I'm totally confused. This one does not make any sense to me. <laughs> I have uh, no idea what the last O could stand for. What's your guess? Like, I can't even conceptualize think, Kate, like, what this is supposed to be, like what its function is. You know what I mean? I'm just like totally. Kate, I think you're onto something. I just don't know what the last O would stand for. Yeah, me neither. I'm just, I, I have not, I have no idea, Alex.
0: The answer is Office of Marine and Aviation Operations.
1: Yeah, we were never going to guess that. Okay, now that you said I've that, I've never it makes even sense. heard of it before.
0: <laughs> well, that is the agony of alphabet soup. Thank you both for playing today. This was a difficult one. And you both did exceptionally well. And now back to the show.
1: Moving on to my next question. I wanted to talk a little bit more about AI uh, because it's a big priority for all of DoD right now, um, including the Air Force, of course. But I've heard from a lot of folks in DoD that AI really requires a strong data foundation, data management and governance practices in order to make AI a reality. So I'm interested in hearing about how the Air Force is working to develop that strong data foundation
2: for AI. Yes. So so I, I would agree with that. Um, first, I want to share that um, we have been investing in AI research and partnerships, and we have some incredible use cases under our skis, mm-hmm. including doing some really interesting things with voice translation, including with um, a lot of static, like radios, and using very strange military language that, you know, a Google... Uh, a Google algorithm wouldn't necessarily be trained on out of the box, for instance. Um, And then also some predictive maintenance for airplanes, um, optimization uh, for deploying air assets. There's some very interesting use cases that that we've, we've had some really good successes on. But really, those successes will be for a mission in a place, for a mission in a few places, until at scale, we really are just rocking it on data. And um, and that's true for, for any organization in the world. And so how we're working that data foundation right now, um, first, we are doubling down on our enterprise data catalog, um, making sure that folks know how to register their data set and, and how to also uh, indicate whether that is training quality data, perhaps for an algorithm, or whether that is data that is going to feed into into software, um, to be able to give a level of um, kind of completeness and accuracy for the data, and to help people to understand how that data could help with a particular problem that they're trying to solve. And implementing enterprise metadata standards um, that, that's going to be a big priority um, for this year um, and really um, doubling down on metadata discovery and ingestion. Um, those are going to be uh, big priorities this year. Um, as we get a little bit more mature with that, we want to launch a recommendation engine that utilizes metadata, AI and machine learning to recommend data integration and data delivery. Um, and so, that is something that will help with a variety of our mission sets. And then um, working through orchestration and data ops. Those are, those are kind of the key pieces, the key next steps for fiscal year 23 and 24.
1: Gotcha. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and hear from you about your career journey You've built a long career in national security on the industry side. So I'm curious about how your experience in the private sector has equipped you to handle IT challenges at the Department of the Air Force. And I'm interested in what it was about the Air Force and IT that initially attracted you.
2: Sure. So um, so first, I wouldn't say that... Um, I, I had no idea a number of years ago that I would be working with the Air Force or that mm-hmm. I would be uh, working in a CIO role. Um, those things kind of happen naturally and a bit by accident. If you, if you go back to 2017, I think it was, um, I was an entrepreneur working at the National Security Intersection. And I got, um, I got a call from an Air Force captain that I actually didn't know all that well, um, but he had heard of my company and he said, Hey, we need more companies like yours in this sector. Um, I would really just love to bounce some ideas with you. And so I went and had a a beer with this airman and, um, and he just laid out a number of problems in the innovation ecosystem of the department. And. Through that conversation, I I literally drew out on a bar napkin how I would go about approaching some of these problems. And that bar napkin uh, turned into a PowerPoint presentation. It it ended up in front of General Kim Crider um, that Monday. And she asked where it came from and and if she could meet me. So we started chatting. Um, I was then introduced to General Holmes, who later became the air combat commander um, he wanted to chat and then ultimately, uh, general Bill Bender, who was the CIO at the time. And, um, that group of people kind of tackled me and said, um, Hey, we, we really, we would love for you to come and work with us on these things. Is there any way that you would consider coming in to serve just for a period of time? And, um, after saying no, a bunch of times, um, they, they reminded me how much actually I missed serving. I had, I had run around the halls of the NSA and the CIA earlier in my career, and I did miss that mission. And um, what really, really kind of pulled my heartstrings a little bit is one of the generals said, when you talk about these things, we believe that we can make them happen. And I had never met a general in my life, but I was, in fact, very passionate about these things and and maybe was was just silly enough to believe that we could do some of these things. And so um, so I, I jumped in as the, uh, the Air Force, just the Air Force at the time, Space Force wasn't born yet, um, but the Air Force's Chief Transformation Officer. And during that time really got to light the fire of DevSecOps um, and help Kessel Run uh, develop the first continuous ATO strategy that allowed it to deploy software at mission speed and to do so securely um, and to build in some some new practices that helped them to deliver for warfighter performance. And we also, we launched Digital U during that time um, that democratized best in class education for our warfighters. And so um, just got to do some really exciting um, things during that time. And just as I was planning to probably head back to industry, uh, the former CIO kind of called me in and said, hey, I am, I'm gonna be leaving the Air Force in a little while. This, the, by this point, we were the Department of the Air Force, I believe. And he said, I, I think you're the next obvious CIO. And I, I thought at the time that was anything but obvious. I had been the innovation executive. I was still uh, somewhat of an outsider to the department. And, and we tend not to not hire outsiders as three-star equivalents um, in, in kind of the, the bureaucratic structure. But I did agree to throw my name into the hat, just as I had agreed to throw my name in the hat three years before. And what I said at the time was, if the Air Force is crazy enough to choose me and wants to do something a little bit different, then I absolutely have to answer that call to serve. And um, so about, I guess it was eight months later, um, the Air Force had selected me as the Chief Information Officer, and and so I jumped in. And um, you know, it's definitely been a wild ride. And there are a lot of um, just incredible people um, that we get to enable. You know, it, it, in a lot of ways, you know, as an innovation executive, you can solve many problems in a place, even some enterprise problems, pretty quickly. As a CIO, you have to go down to what are those foundational things that have been broken for decades? And how do I create velocity upstream so that people can solve those problems much, much faster and don't hit headwinds? So um, in some ways, a natural progression, um, in some ways, a completely different uh, problem set. But, But what really made me want to do it was seeing all of the barriers to the DevSecOps community and the innovation community and wanting to see what could I do with putting in place some of those enterprise services and making people excited to use the enterprise services and not having to reinvent basic things to have the tools that they needed to do their jobs. And so that, that has been a a key focus and, um, it has absolutely been an honor of a lifetime.
1: That's such a cool story. I feel like you don't hear stories like that, that often, um, especially like how you came into this role, so what would you say is the hardest part of your job right now?
2: I will say historically, um, the hardest part of this job is knowing how much underinvestment there has been for so long. Um, I saw I saw a cartoon the other day that resonated with me so much, it was it was a house and it was cracked down the middle, and um, like the the cement foundation was just falling over. You could see the cinder blocks just crumbling, and it almost looked like something had cut the house in half, and it had just it had just broken over time. And then there's a, a person on the other side saying, "Hey, why is it taking so long to replace the windows?" and 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 that just sums up kind of where IT is in the Department of Defense is that um, there's a lot of education and understanding what is the impact of underfunding something for that long and how much tech debt there is and, and what is the cost of that tech debt. And you know, we talked about DevSecOps earlier, if you are deploying to legacy infrastructure, things are going to break. Just, just flat out they are going to break. Um, you are not going to have the agility, you are not going to have the resilience. It's not until you really do a, a, adapt those modern infrastructures that you're going to get the resilience that you need. And you have to have also, you know, the power and the cooling for your data centers. There are very basic things that, that you have to do. Um, we've done a much better job at providing that foundation over the past year and in fact, educating people on what is the impact of that tech debt? Um, But definitely, uh, you know, in the beginning, I think about a week before I took the job, there was another billion dollar cut to IT. Um, So one of the first things that I had to do was make sure that people understood exactly what that impact would be, that uh, we have increasingly IT and digital and cyber capabilities writ large as the underpinning for our competitive advantage, not just as a defense department, but as a nation. Um, It is also the basics of what people need to do their job. Um, And so um, just really making sure that we were funding IT and that uh, the, the capabilities that we need to compete with a near peer adversary and to enable every other thing over the next few years that during my tenure, that, that I would know that I had enabled those things and that I had enabled a funding picture that could go forward. Um, so those, those are definitely uh, some of the challenges. Um, I'll tell you for me personally too, It definitely drives me nuts when we make easy things hard and that anybody in the Department of Defense um, definitely has scars from just making really easy things hard. Mm -hmm. Um, We also really love to um, to take a very long time to make certain decisions and involve many, many, many different groups in making decisions. And and sometimes that's a really, really important thing. And sometimes that means that three years later, you're deploying a capability that is OBE. Um, you know, th- those are tough. I think, I think uh, you know, our acquirers would say too that, you know, they have a pretty tough job and everyone wants acquisition to go faster. Um, but they, they also have a pretty complex environment. Um, we also have an environment where protests, um, they're a really important part of our process in making sure that things are fair. But, you know, we build almost a year of protests into our delivery schedule. Um, and if I'm trying to buy something, and it's delayed a year for protest, that's another year that our capability has been delayed to our warfighter. And so um, there are just, there are some things, um, you know, it's a good exercise in a little bit of patience and a little bit of driving really, really hard the things that you can control. And um, there are things that, you know, that, that you can't control as well. And just kind of um, making sure that that you and the organization are doing your absolute best within a lot of pretty big things that we just don't uh, control, and trying to defy those odds every day to fight the good fight, and um, you know, and and keep people's energy in to fight that good fight because um, you know, if if not us, then who? And uh, and it's a really really important mission.
1: Yeah, that's insane. I was I was going to say that sounds like it requires a lot of patience, especially when you're working with within such a big organization and all of those different pressures and getting pulled in so many different directions. So my last question for you is, as a woman in federal defense IT, what has your journey to a leadership position been like? And what advice do you have for women interested in following in your footsteps or pursuing similar career paths?
2: So I, I'd say that, um, a lot of my advice probably applies equally to women and to men, um, and really to to anyone. I, I think historically we've looked at um a, a couple of a couple of statistics on women being less likely to throw their name into the hat for a position. Mm-hmm. Um I am definitely guilty of that. Um yeah. and I guess I have been blessed in my career that in times when it would not have occurred to me to put my name in the hat, including my last two jobs for the Air Force, including executive jobs that I've had um, in the past. I've had people pull me in. So I, I have been lucky in that way. I think that, but but once, once it was flagged for me, I threw my name in the hat. Even if I didn't think that I was ready for the job, especially earlier in my career, I was willing to put myself out there um, and, and kind of throw my hat in the ring. If you check every box for a job, y- you've outgrown that job already, you know? So so definitely give yourself room to challenge yourself and 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 show up to try. Um, and that comes down to, you know, just thinking about life as a series of doors. When an opportunity presents itself, know that that is a door that you can go through or not. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, if it doesn't work out, you, you don't have to, uh, you know, continue. You can always pivot. Um, but you have to choose which opportunities you're going to go through and which opportunities you're not. And, and don't allow fear of something new to keep you from trying it because that thing that you're going to try, that seems a little outside of your comfort zone. Most of the time, it's going to be exactly what you should do. Um, and, and, when, and when you walk through the door there, you know, you you absolutely need to be prepared, but there does need to be an element of, of confidence in what you do. And if you don't have confidence that day or if it takes you a while to find that confidence, fake it till you make it. You you can't walk into a room and, and tell yourself, hey, I don't got it today or I don't got it at all. Um, one thing that I tell my kids and I think a famous person said this and I don't know who, um, but, you know, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably going to be right. And I, I think that, you know, you can choose to say I got this and go in confidently. And a lot of times that makes a really big difference. Um, and, and that is something that. Um, I've at least heard that we have data that, you know, that women want to know that that we are prepared for something. Guys have an easier time just going like, ah, you know, I'm just going to kind of give it a shot or or kind of being overconfident regardless of level of skill. And so that that's an asset, having that confidence and jumping in. Um, earlier, I mentioned... Um, just having a willingness, a willingness to toss your name into the hat and 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 go through doors. I think that one thing that I've done well, and why some of the folks have pulled me into things, is because um, you know I don't I don't think about networking uh, the way that a lot of folks do, um, but if you think of networking as when I meet someone that I can learn from, I want to cultivate that relationship. There have been people that I've met throughout my career. I I wouldn't necessarily have called them mentors. I didn't know that what I was doing was recruiting a mentor. I just genuinely have enjoyed spending time with people with interesting ideas. And when you spend time with people with interesting ideas, you're going to learn, you're going to naturally find more opportunities, and there there are going to be times that, you know, that you can help them and that they can help you. And a lot of those relationships have led to some of the best opportunities that I've had. Um, And and I guess another thing is um, definitely make sure that that you know that you can learn something from anyone, no matter what role you're in. You know, if you're the president of a company, you still should be learning from probably some of the junior members of that company. Um, And in this big company, you know, I always tell people that everyone should have a mentor who's a captain, because that's just a sweet spot of where people can see uh, they have a lot of experience but they can still see things with the eyes of a beginner. And those are the people that that definitely you want to learn from and lean into in any organization. I, I hope that's helpful.
1: Oh, it's very helpful. I feel like that's really great advice. And I thought it was really interesting what you said about, you know, throwing your name into the hat, even when, you know, you feel like you may not be ready or qualified and how that's, that can sometimes hold women back if they're not throwing their name into the hat, because I interviewed Sharon Woods, you know, director of Hack at DISA in January, and she said the same thing. She said, you know, one of her biggest pieces of advice is to, you know, go for that job or that position, even if you feel like you're not quite ready for it. Uh, So it's it's really cool to, to hear that common theme. And I also thought it was really interesting what you said about networking, because I feel like that can also that can trip people up sometimes. I know that's not necessarily a strength of mine. So it's really interesting to hear you frame it that way in terms of like, how can I learn from these people?
2: Absolutely. And I'll I'll add one more thing, too. Um, I think a lot a lot of women um, work very, very hard to focus on the job at hand. And it is important to do that. But if you do that in a way that is blind to mission outcomes or that is blind to kind of the broader collaboration environment, then you you're probably hurting your trajectory. Um, You'll be really, really incredible in the specialty that you're in, um, but you might be kind of missing the forest for the trees. And um, if you can think about how you spend your time in a day and think about the things that you do that add the most value and visibility to your team, your organization, to your boss, um, to your equivalent and other parts of the organization, then you're going to be able to drive outsized impact. And if you solve a problem just for you and your team, that's one way to drive impact. If you reach to horizontals across your organization and share, that's how you start to create outsized impact. And I think I think a lot of folks get fo- so focused on their work and kind of being business and, and wanting mm-hmm. to to prove themselves that it, it's really easy to lose sight of that, that broader team. And it's also really easy to get burned out on things that aren't going to matter as much to other people. Um, so that yeah. that's a really key piece of advice as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's great advice. That's a I think that's a really good perspective to have, especially when you're being pulled in different directions. Well, thank you so much for your time, Lauren. I really appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about what the Air Force is working on this year and looking forward to seeing that Zero Trust strategy.
0: That was a great conversation. Kate, before we let our listeners go, do you have any takeaways from your chat that you want to share?
1: So I feel like I talked about a lot of the big highlights already, but something else that I think was really interesting that Lauren said was the hardest part of her job in IT is getting funding for IT. It's usually one of those things that gets budget cuts first. And because so much of all of our lives and jobs, including in the Defense Department and including, you know, the warfighter depends on technology now, especially information technology. That's really not an acceptable stance to take anymore. Like you can't be cutting funding for IT. And so a big part of her job is, you know, fighting for that and you fighting, you know, people above her who maybe want to say like, you know, no, we shouldn't, no, we're we're just not going to give this to you. And you know, she has to make the argument every day. Like, no, actually, we need this, <laughs> in order to like actually do what the Department of the Air Force is supposed to do. So, I mean, that sounds tough. Like, I mean, that's that's haggling with Congress. That's hagg- haggling with the secretary. That's that's a lot. <laughs> so, I was not expecting her to say that, though. I mean, I know that IT budgets, you know, tend to be underfunded, but it just seemed like one of those like obvious things, you know. It's just like, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting you to say that. So I just thought that was interesting as what she describes as the hardest part of her job. But also, you know, looking to the future, she said that she sees the Air Force software factories and how they approach software development in the cloud as the future of the Air Force. And a, a big part of that. Of enabling that is the joint warfighting cloud capability, which that contract was just awarded at the end of calendar year 2022 in December to the four major players in the cloud service provider space, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Oracle. So it's really cool to see how all of these different trends and big stories are kind of convalescing together in this way. And hearing her talk about all of these things in a holistic way, like these big cloud moves across DoD are really elevating what the software factories are doing. And what the software factories are doing is really the future of the Air Force. So I would say that was a pretty cool takeaway.
0: Well, thank you so much, Kate. That was a great conversation. To get deep analysis and insider perspective on what's trending in federal cybersecurity, subscribe to and follow CyberCast and visit our website at govciomedia.com. I'm Alexander Bolova.
1: I'm Kate Mackey.
0: Thank you for listening. GovCast, along with HealthCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, and to check out the other shows, head to GovCIOmedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at